What you want is you want a big vision that is anchored in the future and then trace a path back to the present. And I don't think you need to know the full path. I think you need to know the big vision and you need to know the first step and you need to have a pretty good guess at what step two would be. But that's it. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. We're super excited to welcome Guy Pajarni to the show. Guy's co-founder, president, and chairman of the board, and also former CEO of Sneak, the leader in developer-first cloud-native application security. Put simply, the company provides developers with the tools they need to effectively build security into their continuous development process. Originally from Israel, Guy studied computer science and worked in military intelligence in the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF. And before co-founding the company in 2015 with Danny Grander and Asaf Hafetz, Guy helped develop AppScan. He co-founded Blaze.io, which was acquired by Akamai in 2012, and is an angel investor and advisor to many seed stage startups in the infrastructure, dev tooling, and security space. Today, we're going to learn how Sneak is changing how developers approach app security and why it's become one of the best places to work. Guy, thanks for joining us and welcome to Founder Real Talk. Uh, thanks for having me in, Glenn. Happy to uh, share some views. <laughs> it's awesome. We're looking forward to it. So let's start from the beginning. You were in the IDF working in military intelligence for four plus years. And then shortly after, you worked on AppShield and AppScan. While you were in the IDF, were there any moments where you thought, hey, we can do better in terms of security? What made you decide to go down the route of founding companies in the space? Yeah, I think the, the Israeli army is is a really interesting place to sort of build up certain expertise. It's it's not so much how we do things in cybersecurity, because I'd say it's a bit of a bubble in that sense. It, it sort of has its own kind of closed systems. There are some specific needs, maybe uh, and your exposure to the industry isn't top tier, like you're not necessarily well exposed. But I think what it does very, very well is to really instill this sort of everything is possible type mindset. There's all these mechanics. You know, I was a, first a student, then sort of a guide in the courses, the class, you know, that bring you into it. And a lot of the teaching techniques are all about pretty much kind of, you know, having you confront a problem and figure it out. And sometimes it feels a little bit harsh, but really over time you, you build up a certain uh, approach to how do you actually tackle a problem? How do you go back to first principles? How do you think about it and uh, and that it, you get it done? So there's a, almost this uh, element of resilience, definitely mission driven. So here's a goal, get it done. And so once you sort of identify a problem, there's a, a bit of a an ability to focus. One of the amazing things about the Israeli army that I think we should really instill in, in other spots is uh, it, it has the benefit that no company really has, which is, you know, at the it has all the population, you know, between 16 and 18 year olds that, you know, kind of at its disposal to filter, right? A lot of these people are quite encouraged to come in and whatever, do the best or the most that they can in the army. It's gotten very good over the years at identifying the people that are best at a specific thing and filtering them into a group. Uh, and as a result of that, the caliber in whatever it is that your specific profession is of the people around you tends to be quite high your bar becomes pretty high. You come out kind of judgmental 
about what good looked like and what's a speed and a caliber that you want to work with. And with a bit of a network of people that might have sort of built up that type of skill set or, uh, or have that potential. And so I think all of those are what I came out with the army versus industry knowledge. I, uh, I jumped into a company, Giliranan, actually, I uh, founded early on back in uh, uh, called Sanctum that dealt with application security. And that's that's really was one of the first sort of AppSec players building AppShield and AppScan. And that, that really is what got me into understanding the industry and what can be done better and even early steps into the path that eventually led to sneak around kind of building application security into development. There's um, a mythology around being a founder that sometimes it's it's kind of like you have a dream, it hits you over the head and you were born to do this specific thing and create this specific company. For you, this isn't your first founding rodeo. Like curious, like if you feel like you've learned or what specifically you learned that makes you better, made you better founding Sneak, given that you had already had both the IDF experience and then and then working and founding you know companies prior. Yeah, so I think uh, a friend once phrased it that when you found your second company or probably later, you still need to swim across an ocean, but you know how to swim. You know, so <laughs> it feels feels like the the challenge is still pretty monumental, but you slightly better equipped at sort of knowing what you need to do. And so when I founded Blaze, my first company, I think my skill set was almost entirely technological. I came from the world of security, where we've done deep analysis of applications. So I knew how to build tech that analyzes applications and how to sort of build architectures. And then I built a company that applies that type of technology skill to performance. And so could make web pages faster through that. And I think at the time, I still had, although I was a product manager you know, before and I had maybe a bit of a product lens, I was still thinking about the product and the tech orientation. I think when I came to, to found Sneak, Sneak was, I definitely was better equipped at understanding the company. You know, what is it that you need to do to sort of found a company? Had a much better appreciation for the uh, almost like go-to-market product fit. You know, like which product do you need and how does that align to do it? I, I didn't build Sneak to be a developer tool. I built it built it to be a developer tooling company, and and I think I had a much better appreciation of that. Some of that was just more mileage in the industry, and a bunch of that was learnings and mistakes made during plays. One unfair advantage you do get, though, founding your second company is people have much higher conviction that you can do it. <laughs> and so, from a fundraising perspective, from a recruiting perspective, I would say it was night and day. First startup versus second startup. And then I guess the last thing I would say beyond knowledge is founding and having a, a, a modest exit, but one that sort of set me up financially in the first company, Blaze, that I sold to Akamai, gave me the financial backing and the comfort to go big, to really kind of do something that, uh, that tries to make a dent in the universe. And so I think that was, that was very helpful, was just sort of less worrying about, you know, I'm, I'm a spoiled kind of tech employee. So like, I've never really been worried about putting kind of food on the table, but still kind of being in a, in a different place in terms of that comfort. That's great. Let's switch to talk about Sneak now. You founded the company in 2015 with Danny and Asaf. Tell us about Sneak. What does it do and who is it for? Sure. So Sneak's kind of a reason for existence is what we call developer-first security. And the premise is pretty simple, which is, as the world moves towards kind of modern development and independent teams and agility, it's all about shortening that circle between writing a line of code, getting it to a customer, to the market, understanding what's happening, what's the response, adapting to that and kind of tightening that loop. And the faster that loop is, the better your business does. You know, it's really like at the business level, 
something the whole industry is going through, call it digital transformation, call it what you will. And so this means businesses switch to working in this model of independent teams and the security industry as a whole, hasn't really gotten the memo. It really hasn't adapted. It tends to be much more centralized. We felt, I felt that this cannot continue, that the only solution, the only way to kind of keep, uh, make the world secure, make the, the digital world secure is to build security into development. And our kind of light bulb moment is that to achieve that, we need to, to like if we want to get developers to embrace security, if we want to do this, that the industry has failed, we need to build a developer tooling company, not a security company. And it's a fairly simple insight, but it was pretty powerful, which is, you know, if you want developers to embrace it, you need to build a developer first product and company. And so that's what we do today. You know, we've built initially solutions around open source security, finding and fixing vulnerabilities in the open source components that you use. We've since expanded into what we call today cloud native application security, which is kind of covering everything in the repo it realizes that in in that same world of cloud and in the same name of independent teams more and more layers that historically have been centrally managed like your data center your databases your servers all of those things are moving from being kind of centrally managed by an it organization to being a part of the application they're being apis the cloud provides and managed out of the repo uh, and so our view, back to that sort of dev first view, is that as a developer, you don't want you know this security solution popping up when you edit that file and that security solution popping up when you edit the other file. So we build uh, a platform for securing everything in the repo, everything in that sort of cloud native application scope, uh, always with that developer first manner. Uh, yeah, that's Nick in a nutshell. That's super interesting. And I remember when we first met, you were focusing on open source and third-party security, but you always had that vision of application security needs to start bottom-up and needs to be geared for developers. Could you talk about having that vision versus use case or starting with a use case to complete the vision versus going after a platform-based company from the beginning? Yeah, let me kind of give you my perspective on Sneak and then like maybe a slightly broader perspective. So for Sneak, dev first has always been the core notion. In my kind of uh, ugly little kind of black and white seed mini deck, because I got sort of the perk of not needing to create a pretty deck to get to race that first uh, first round, it already had four products. I was wildly off about which products and how long it's going to take you to sort of build each one of them. But it was already, it was always meant to be this developer-first security was the story. Open source security was the first step. And we never really let us take our eye off, off the ball on that one. And I think that's really the the core is always kind of stuck to it. In fact, at the beginning, it was almost, it was hard, right? When I had these meetings, whether it's investors or it's uh, even more so customers, it was always a battle. Do I present Sneak as a developer-first security company that now we're doing open source or you only have so much attention? Do I jump into like the thing that the product does right now? But it was always there. I think if I, if I broaden this, my view is when you found a company and you build a company, you always need to think about big vision, small steps, so on one hand, you have to have a big vision because like fundamentally, again, especially for people that are privileged enough to be in, in, in tech, the worst thing that can happen is wasting your time. The most precious asset you have, we kind of have as people, is time. The big vision is really to say, I want to build something that is worth my while, that is worth my time, that grows, especially if you're going into venture, that grows in the pace that I want. And so... It needs to be a big idea and it needs to be anchored in the future. If you're incremental to what it is today, hey, there's a pain here, this UI is not sufficiently appealing or whatever, they haven't integrated with this other tool, 
it's not going to work. You know, you're going to continue. You might get great initial traction, but in a few years' time, things will catch up, and 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 now you don't really have a true leg to stand on. What you want is you want a big vision that is anchored in the future, and then trace a path back to the present. If you succeed, your company's primary momentum and presence in the market will happen in that sort of five years' time. Right? It'll be further out. So you want to make sure that what you have is even more compelling, even more obviously needed at that time. And so for us, that was debt for security. However, you have to build these small steps because otherwise you might not survive to make that sort of you know future destination. You won't make it to the future. I like to think about which step would you take that is setting you up towards that vision, but that if you got stuck in that step for 10 times longer than you thought, you wouldn't regret having taken that step. And I think much of what we do always anchors in that model. Sometimes it means you have to think about how you make the steps smaller. So for us, debt for security has always been the vision, continues to be the vision. It's, a, it's, a, it's sort of almost an infinite opportunity around all the security value we can provide to all the developers in the world. But it's always been small steps. It started with open source security. I didn't know how to phrase it quite as well. When we launched new product like container security, we launched it as an add-on. So we launched a small thing. So it was a good step that was already useful. And we didn't know. We didn't like go and staff a team and raise around to build product number two. We did, we did that and we grew it and we evolved it and it worked out well. We did the same with our infrastructure as code security product. You know, we kind of evolved that. Now, as you get bigger, the bets, this, what is a small step, but still one that can move the needle becomes bigger, right? Acquiring a company to do static analysis, for instance, right? That we did as deep code. That was an example of it. But it was still at the scale that the company was operating at that time was still a small step. Those are new products, but really this concept of anything you do needs to have this big vision, but then have a, uh, a small step. And I don't think you need to know the full path. I think you need to know the big vision and you need to know the first step and you need to have a pretty good guess at what step two would be. But that's it. You don't need more than that because you will be so much wiser at the end of that step one. You will have seen so many things that there might be a totally different set of steps. So don't waste time on that. Just sort of ensure that you're working towards the North Star and that you know where to place the next foot. Big vision, small steps. Got it. I want to go back to something you said, Sneak. Well, Sneak is an application security company, but it's an application company, or more specifically to your words, is a developer company. It's perhaps one of the first bottoms-up security companies, at least that I know of, which a lot of companies today are trying to mimic could you tell us about the selling motion? You already explained that the ones are using Sneak are developers, but who's buying it and how do you get there? Yeah. And I mean, I agree that that's probably like our biggest achievement is really around kind of breaking through and getting that motion through developers to security. So Sneak is, you know, it's developer first security. So the most important user of the product is the developer. And I, I'll admit that I take some enjoyment from talking to a CISO and telling them, you're not the most important user of my product. <laughs> you know, the most important user of the product is the developer because you and I share the same risk, which is the worst thing that can happen is that this software sits on the shelf, that it doesn't get adopted by developers. And it doesn't matter how amazing and wonderful and, and AI and everything, you know, this uh, technology is. If developers don't pick it up, it's not going to help you. And so, the most important user is the developer, and generally, I've yet to really encounter a CISO that disagrees with this. You know, like they they agree that that is uh, that is the premise. However, the budget for purchasing for securing the organization is oftentimes, especially as the organization gets bigger, oftentimes sits with security people. And so, with Snick's motion, is it's a bottom up solution. First of all, it's free for open source. Open source projects can use it for free. 
uh, and that serves as a as a visibility vehicle for developers. It, it is a good contribution and supports to help the open source community itself be more secure. And from a business perspective, it serves as visibility. A lot of times, it's the same people consuming those open source projects, contributing to those open source projects. And if they like what they see from Snake there, they might pull it into their product. Subsequently, it is freemium for private code. So it has a certain amount of quantity that it allows a developer without getting a ton of permissions to use it. And we've invested in making that path low friction. We can talk about freemium some more, but we've invested in making that path low friction. There's a, a bunch of ways a developer can consume the product. There's a command line interface, there's Git integrations, there's IDE plugins, a whole bunch of ways. The bottom-up is almost entirely focused on developers. It's not about getting a security people, a security person starting to use the product. It's about getting a developer starting to use the product. And then the commercial tier is more focused on governance. So the understanding is that developers come in, they secure their sort of daily work, but really the flip, you know, the point in which you are looking to pay for it is when you're saying, okay, now I want to know what's going on. I want to know. I want to govern my security, know how many vulnerabilities I have, track them over time, know which team is handling what. So those bits very much tip you over to the payment tier. Who pays? It's from the security budget. And in many, in most organizations, that security budget means security. But in certain, sometimes it's digital transformation initiatives. In smaller companies, sometimes there is no defined security budget. So it comes out of platform or out of sort of the, the CTO, the VP engineering type role. So it varies, but it's more around whoever purchases a security solution. The one thing I would say that I think is interesting, and it goes to show how markets evolve, is when we launched Sneak, so Sneak was, you know, we launched a, a crappy little product in sort of in beta in October of, of 2015. We GA'd it and actually kind of had a premium element in June the following year. So we evolved it. At that point, we had, I think, maybe even already tens of thousands of free users. And we expected... You know, we opened up this sort of uh, X dollars a month type payment for developers to purchase. We opened it up. We waited for the floodgates. You know, like we opened the you know the the dams and kind of waited for the flood to come in. Nothing happened. <laughs> you know, we got like a handful. We got very very small number of uh, of users converting. That led us to that realization around how people's primary emotion was this governance. They they needed breadth. We built deep products. We got developers to sort of embrace the product because they were deep. They worked well in their surroundings. Security people needed more breadth. They needed governance. So it evolved our thinking over there. Just earlier this quarter, we released a team edition version, which is to an extent the same thing that we launched back then. It is now a X dollars a month, low volume utilization aimed at developers paying it. And now it's doing amazingly well. Now we understand that what we're offering in that team edition is the notion of continuous security. It's the notion of, it's not about governance, it's about securing your work as a natural responsibility of a development team. And I think that concept just didn't exist five years ago. Like five years ago, there just weren't many teams that were willing to take that up. Now the market has matured, people accept this responsibility a lot more, dev teams do. And so sometimes things don't work just because of timing, and now they're actually working quite well. So anyways, that's the, that's the rough commercial model. I will say that as the company grows, you adapt and you grow and you have multiple avenues. So while that's our primary motion, we do augment that with top-down sales. We do have a lot of great partners and have sort of channel and alliances, driven sales. Uh, and I think you know, generally we've added more ways in which you can discover Sneak and purchase Sneak that match to the many ways that organizations like to buy software. Yeah, that's quite insightful. I, I remember talking with a CISO a few years ago and I asked them their feedback about Sneak. 
And they say, oh, I love Sneak. I said, great. What do you like about it? What, what is it better than the competition? I said, I don't know. I never open it. I said, what do you mean? Like, no, the developers love it. Therefore, I love it. So that makes a ton of sense. And uh, kudos to you for finding that uh, wedge and getting into the kind of the um, hearts and minds of developers who are the important constituents building software. Yeah, I mean, that was the goal and and almost like the crowning achievement, you know, is kind of breaking through to developers. And I will say that like self-serve is a core when you think about developer tooling companies, you have to pick your role models, right? And for us, we picked the role models to be the developer tooling companies. And I think that in turn dictates a bunch of things, including how we operate. We, you know, walk and talk and quack like a dev tooling company, not like a cyber company. And look, it's it's amazing how many cyber companies today come up and sort of say dev first in their text. And that's it. You know, it's kind of where the dev friendliness, they sometimes even invest in sort of dev UX, but you know, they don't actually build the tool in the way the developers like to consume it. I'd say you'd be hard-pressed to find companies that got good traction amidst developers that don't have a self-serve product. So, 100%. There probably exist, but not many. Yeah, developers, from our experience, react much better to great product than they do um, salespeople offering steak dinners or these days Zoom calls. So, Guy... Very, very interesting story for you guys in your journey going from bottoms up to figuring out a commercial strategy. And it sounds like it's continuing to evolve. A lot of the companies that you know we work with, uh, entrepreneurs we meet, many, many companies, as Oren mentioned earlier, are really experimenting with bottoms up and product-led growth strategies. And I'd say that the hardest part for companies who are successful getting the flywheel going, getting usage and engagement to work is then figuring out how to how to tie the knot to some sort of commercial strategy, close the loop. It sounds like for you guys, there was some combination of market read like market readiness wasn't there for like a team edition when you started. You had to experiment. Thankfully, found a very good model in focusing on governance as a way to appeal to budget holders in the earlier days of your commercial strategy. Any words of advice you give to to founders who are going through this process? Even for you guys, I think the mythology is, wow, you know, they nailed it, they cracked the code and and things have been fantastic from day one. It sounds like you guys had the crickets problem that a lot of companies have. They open the floodgates and they don't see the flood. It's amazing the sort of the stories that you hear, you know, about companies, you know, you think it's all kind of uh, shiny and great, but yeah, no, not even close. Culturally, you had to have that like agility as part of your mindset and any advice you give to others who are facing that that same battle? There's a whole bunch of things. So my primary advice is you need to think about the persona and the use case. And people just don't do that enough. There's too many startups, too many founders. They, they think about their technology and how it can be used. And that's just a bad starting point. Like the starting point needs to be the use case of the company and the person doing the work and then try to kind of weed down from there what is the right proposition, what are the right technologies, and what's the right go-to-market. And so, for example, for the context of Sneak, the use case for governance or developer is something that I phrase here. If we flipped it around, it's not about what can Sneak technology be used for. For a developer, the use case is the notion of, like, I'm building code. I want to be able to find problems early. I want to get this information as a natural part of my of my work. But really, the problem I'm trying to address is one of rework, right, of late detection of a problem, 
I'm trying to address the fact that I do not have security expertise. And so I want to build secure software. And I'm trying to address the fact that it's just too hard. You know, security, every developer in the world, if it was equally easy, would rather write secure software than insecure software, most developers, almost every. And yet the industry has made it so terribly hard for a developer to write secure code, and they're not going to become deep security experts, and their job is to build software. So you want to make that easy. Governance isn't included in anything that I said right now, but the, it is mandatory for the buyer. The buyer isn't writing code. You know, It's not at all about them. They know they need that, but their use case is that of governance, and they need a totally different set of capabilities relying on some core engine. And so I think I think this, this notion of the use case and matching the use case to the persona is something that is just not discussed enough. You ask someone, what is it? They go for like market problems. Hey, companies are doing X, Y, Z, and it is so inefficient and we can do it so much better because of this amazing technology. And they, they forget the people <laughs> and the sort of the, the use cases that happen in the middle. I would also say that some companies go the other way around and they offer too much for, for free. So there's this perspective. So when, when you talk about bottom-up, I will basically defer back to, to this notion of, of a use case. So people talk about, hey, I'll, I'll have a free tier whether it's open source or it's a service that is freemium, differences in there. But but fundamentally, they're both around giving some amount of product for free because you think you'll eventually derive better business value out of that. And so in those cases, there's too much conversation about features. People think about how do I not cannibalize the later stage if I provide technology, this or that. And that's just, again, for me, a, a flawed view. What ends up happening is you provide a set of capabilities that don't satisfy, like you, you have a high risk of, on one hand, providing a set of capabilities that doesn't satisfy any use case. You know, you you only allow some, right? If Sneak only allowed you to run 10 tests and you'd wanted developers to do it, then the very developers a month, right? The very developers that are trying to work continuously and work independently, they build more than 10 times a month. There's no way that that product would satisfy their needs. And so we had to be more, you can think of it as more generous, but really, we gave a larger amount because we wanted to, to satisfy the use case while providing reporting, for instance, and governance reporting had zero impact on a developer. Single sign-on is a notable topic, but still, if you're a development team, it's probably not something that is that important to you. So I think you, from a freemium perspective, you have to understand which use cases would be satisfied by your free tier. And then subsequently, you want to ask, I mean, that's a subsequent question, which is, is freemium even right to you? Do you want to do a freemium versus a free trial, right? And I, if I allow myself one more kind of a ramble over here is people talk about freemium and free trial, and they just think aspirationally. They just think about like, hey, we want freemium because we want this like very broad mass of users using us. And we want that like, because it's a great business model when it works. But you need to stop and ask yourself, First of all, who is this for? Like, who would use your freemium tier? Second, are there enough of those people? You know, like, are there, uh, because you, you, there's going to be a big funnel between that sort of free or open source tier to do it. Three is, what's the friction level? How much effort is it to use your product, to start using your product? If you're asking me to go get all these admin keys and set them up in your system to trust you with sensitive data, you know, to invest a week in writing some application, you're doing all of that work. You, you need me to do all of that work to just get going. You might as well ask me to pay. You know, like there's no there's no <laughs> point in uh, in asking that. In Snick's case, we kind of built this like, okay, just install the like, npm install CLI, Snick test, right? Or you whatever, next, next, next on the GitHub OAuth. So 
if we introduce the credit card into that process, that is a lot of friction added, a lot of complexity. You want to ask yourself, some businesses, sometimes it means you can tune it to say, what's a minimum value unit you can provide in freemium that has enough users to it, that is sufficiently tied to your cause, and that is low friction to install? And sometimes, and it's totally legit, the answer is no. There is no great freemium, except that you're going down a free trial, even within self-serve, and optimize for that, right? Then suddenly you can open all the features, all the capabilities, because you're time-limiting them, and it's a totally different strategy. It all really boils down to use cases, to personas, and to volumes, I guess. Fantastic. Thank you. Guy, many problems up or product-led growth harness the power of the community. How important is the community to sneak, and how did you go about building it? And could you talk specifically about uh, community of builders versus community of users, which I believe it's a term you mentioned in the past. Yeah, for sure. So I think community is super, super important. A little bit back to that freemium notion that we talk about, you want people. I would actually separate into three different types of communities. I think at the top, there's this notion of community of practice. For us, it's DevSecOps and that motion. So I think Sneak came in and we really invested in helping shape the community of practice, the movement that is DevSecOps. We acquired a conference, which was a bit of an odd thing to do, called a DevSecon. And we continue to invest in it. We have competitors sponsoring the event, you know, and we, by the way, donate all the proceeds from the event to good causes, as we do for SneakOn and for other, other events as well. But it really is about fostering a community. We, I host a podcast called The Secure Developer, where I get to talk to like, you know, smart security leaders. For us, DevSecOn, all of those, it's about giving a stage for a collaboration, bring the community together. And we think eventually, if that practice advances, it helps benefit our business. One, because we build product with that mentality. Two, is because we have a certain influence and a certain kind of sway onto this community. But we don't own it. It's not really our community. We're contributing to it. We're empowering it. We're driving it. But we might be leading the operations of aspects of that movement. And so that's the community of practice. And I think it is very, very important when you are shaping a new practice. So if you're building a better mousetrap, you might not need a community of practice. It might just be around the tool. But for a movement like DevSecOps, it's important. The second type is the community of users. And that is very important in the context of, of freemium. It's probably true for any sufficiently large body of users. But if you're talking about freemium, a community of users is very important for cost effectiveness and for just being able to like operate this thing at scale. So community of users is around allowing one user to help one another. It's around kind of giving them a place to share information. Uh, sometimes it's around slight extensibility, like more best practice sharing and, and things like that. And it's also, I think in that notion, we nurture those community of users. We help them help one another and we are kind of at their service. So how do we, how do we help you? How do you support that? So we've invested in it. It's a growth area. I think there's almost never enough that you can do here. And as the company grows and grows, that community becomes even more and more important. So we just keep investing more in it. It's important at the beginning to foster not for size, but for quality. You want to get the passionate users. You know, you want them advocating. And for us, that was open source users. You know, we really invested in them because they became the, the magnification for us alongside helping us make the product better. By the way, they didn't help us crack the commercial piece, but that's totally okay because that, that wasn't their job. As we get bigger, we also have a community, like a separate community of users, which are the product owners, the governance people, uh, which we also bring together. And I just sort of say the last piece is what I call community of builders. 
and that's people building on your platform. So Esnic becomes increasingly a platform you can build on, becomes an extensible platform. So some companies start that way, like Terraform, for instance. You know, like sometimes the community of builders is the first thing that you do, especially for open source uh, based projects. That's a different community. Those are communities that there's there's other elements. There's a what's in it for me type element. Sometimes they're building for themselves. It's more code examples. Um, so I separate those three. I mean, Snake, I think, has been super invested in the first one, quite invested in continuing to double down on the second and more nascent in the third. And I think it's important to separate because we say community a bit too easily <laughs> no, without without deep thinking. I love how you segment, though, the different types of communities that you can focus on and the benefits you get from each. And your point about Terraform, as I think about it, it's a useful rubric because their community of builders, these things that can lead to some virtuous cycles. Their, their community of builders makes the product better, richer with more and more and deeper integrations, which then makes the community of users get more value and have more ways to use the product, which allows for more communication around extensibility. And and so these things can build on each other if done well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think probably most of the builders would be users. It's probably kind of where most of them would be sourced. And and they also, I think the important bit is to understand that beyond the the core community management of just being able to like give them a place and and be able to communicate with those those individuals, there are different emphasis points, you know, there are different services that you might need to give them. So I think you're absolutely right that we shouldn't and we don't think about them as totally separate communities, but we do think of them as they're intertwined, but they also each have their own their own specific needs. Hey guy, let's let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the financial community and, and that aspect of of building your startup here at Sneak. You've gotten lots of accolades, just ranked number 15 on CNBC's Disruptor 50 list this year, which is fantastic. Congratulations. And you closed a not too shabby $300 million Series E funding round, bringing the total that the company's raised to almost a half billion dollars of like $470 million to date and evaluation, you know, into the multi-billions. I think I've got it right at $4.7 billion in the last valuation. Can you talk a little bit about like how fundraising changed. Like if you look at this round and compare it, I know you said because it wasn't your first rodeo, you were able to raise your early rounds easier than you would have if you were swimming across the ocean for the first time. This most recent $300 million round must have felt pretty different. Maybe you could talk a little bit about like the gates you go through with with funding rounds because that's really another dark art and a lot of other entrepreneurs would love to hear your feedback on that. Right. I think my, my seed round, you know, I used an unfair advantage. It was easier to do because of conviction. I was presenting, you know, a, a big idea, a big opportunity that matches the VC math of, you know, this is a go big or go home opportunity. It was a little bit easier for me to probably raise. I raised, you know, a seed round from Bold Start, which I also was aware of and generally am a fan of as a, as a first check investor. Yeah, those guys are great. Yeah. And so that was easy enough for me and kind of with them i brought some other smart people to the uh to the table the next round was kind of hard because what happened was from outside people saw a lot of the traction a lot of top tier investors they saw all these thousands and tens of thousands of, of users and i got lured so i got a certain decent amount from sort of high names of preemptive interest long before like a good six nine months maybe before i was uh going to raise again and I'll admit that I, I got tempted, got it from multiple parties, and I I leaned into it, and I sort of triggered effectively sort of a bit of an impromptu round. 
And it didn't pan out very well. Investors generally came in, they saw, because it took us two years to get to 100,000 in annual recurring revenue. So people sort of about a year and a half in coming in saying, there's no money, fine, they're sort of doing it, classifying it as all the dev tooling companies that many times cannot make the switch. We didn't get the right offer from the right investor. And we're fortunate to actually have Bolt Start top us up over here with good we could have we weren't going to go bust you know we still had enough interest we would have raised it but they were great actually in again giving us on, on good terms a top up a bit of a seed extension that worked out really well by a year later we were already like the revenue was starting to flow in and we did a pretty easy round that excel had since then we haven't had to raise generally the the interest is there and I think when you're when you're doing well and there's good indications, and and I think there's maybe even an special advantage when you're doing well amidst VC backed companies, because then you hear they hear your name often and also as visibly with sort of the, the freemium model, we had a lot of, of interest. We almost never needed the money in all of these last rounds. I think oftentimes the, the reason we raised was really out of true conviction to say this is, we think, a very, very big opportunity. Every time you do a round, you need to double down on your conviction to build something big. Because the primary thing you're doing is you're resetting the clock about whatever exit opportunity, whatever sort of change might happen. And so it's every time it's like another commitment to to everybody and to yourself included that you're going long. And it's an opportunity to really kind of have fuel in the tank so that no matter what, you can keep building and you don't need to slow down. And we've already deployed, like we've made four acquisitions in the last year. Uh, which I think is somewhat unusual for a company our age and stage. They've been great. You know, they've really, really all panned out really great, launching a new product, building our extensible platform, you know, filling gaps in the uh, market. So we, we've we've really done quite well building those out. And, you know, it's deploying that cash. You know, those are opportunities that we had because we had kind of the cash at our disposal. So I think from a fundraising, if you're visible and you're out there, there's a certain point in which they you're chased versus chasing. But I think what you always need to understand is your timeline and kind of that repeat conviction. You don't necessarily need to know what you're going to do with the cash to the full detail if you get it on really kind of good terms and from the right people. But I think once you have the cash, trying to find ways in which like that cash is eventually designed or destined or I guess invested in you for the purpose of accelerating growth. Thinking about how it can accelerate growth is important. I love the realization that every time you raise a round, you've got to double down on your conviction. I think that's that's a subtle point that is not well understood by many many founders. It's a taboo conversation, right? Like you can't tell your VC investor, but wait, if I raise this round right now, it means there's going to be fewer buyers, you know, to sort of come like it's it's just like a conversation that isn't but everybody knows it. So you need to you need to remember that, right? And and be true to it. Yeah, makes sense. So guy, this has been fantastic. We're going to move to our speed round. We'll just ask a couple of quick questions and, and give us the first thing that comes to mind. What book or article do you like that you recommend to other founders? I love uh, Seven Powers by Hamilton Helmer. It's a great strategy book talking about how you effectively, how, how can you accumulate power that helps you provide value to users above and beyond operational excellence. It's a dense book, but it's a great theory and model and I highly recommend it. I've read it. I've read it. It's awesome if you can figure out how to apply it. It's, it's a little theoretical, but I like that one. That's a great selection. Maybe it's a little bit better for like Series B companies, maybe uh, yeah. versus necessarily the seed stage. If you were to start Sneak again today, what would you have done differently? Uh, 
a company is shaped by its mistakes just as much as it's shaped by its successes. So I don't know that I would want to erase our mistakes. I point to a lot of my naivete around the time it'll take to build products around that lack of understanding of you know what it takes for someone to purchase the product and what that entailed. So it's hard for me to really point to a mistake. Maybe, maybe, I think on the hiring front, I've learned over time that today when we hire an executive, we're trying to find someone who can stretch back to the size. It's basically two years ahead of where you need to do it. So when they come into the job, they're not doing the biggest job they've ever done. And therefore, because when you're in hyper-growth mode, that job is only going to get bigger awfully fast. I think we've done well, especially since Peter joined us as CEO, to sort of think think ahead. And he's especially good at that. And I've learned it from him. But that would have, would have been a good realization to have early on as well. That's a great point. David Acheria, the CEO of MongoDB, who's been on, on the podcast, talked similarly about how, you know, when you're growing your company, you have to realize that the jobs, the executive jobs change every 18 to 24 months pretty significantly. And so you may have people who can scale the, into those new roles, but people who are great at one, at one phase may not be the right person for the next phase in a certain role. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a slightly different conversation to think about whether you will keep someone in the role versus if you will promote someone into the role. And even more so, if you're going to hire someone into the role, if you're going to hire someone into the role, buy yourself some bandwidth, try to find someone don't just sort of bring someone who, again, jumps into the biggest job they've ever done because of that potential, because in a year's time, they're going to need to do a job that is twice as big. Yeah, love it. Hey, Guy, this has been an incredible episode. Really excited to get it out into the into the wild. I think people are going to love it. Thank you so much for sharing all the wisdom that you've accumulated over the years and sharing with us some of the magic of the sneak story. It's really a, an incredible one. And we're very excited for you and the company. Warren and I are both chagrined. We feel like it's one of our biggest misses as investors, but we wish just the absolute best for, for you and the company and know that you guys are, have a, a very bright future ahead. So thanks so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. Happy to, uh, to pay it forward. I've learned from uh, many wise advice that I've heard uh, prior to it and still am learning. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at ggvcapital or ggvcapital on WeChat.